Welcome to the International Bus Podcast brought to you by Worby. My name is Tanja Falkner and this episode is the recording of a recent expert panel about localization in the life sciences and global clinical trials. Stay tuned to learn from four industry experts. Welcome to this uh, experts panel about global clinical trials and uh, localization in the life sciences. This panel is brought to you by WordBee, uh, makers of the WordBee translation management system, uh, which has a lot of uh, special features just for the life sciences. Uh, it's hosted by me, Robert Rogi. My cohort, uh, Tanya Faulkner, is uh, not here today because she's globetrotting uh, in the middle of the coronavirus. So she can't make it, but shout out to her. So in the next uh, 50 to 60 minutes, we'll talk about how to efficiently run global clinical trials, um, maybe because we are missing a panelist. Uh, and we'll talk about um, localization in the life sciences and uh, workflows and, and all of that stuff. Uh, and we'll probably talk a lot about the coronavirus and the global pandemic. After the panel, my colleague Jaime is going to um, jump in and uh, give a short demo of Wordbee. So the panel is, uh, you know, we're just going to be talking about subjects at hand. Um, but afterwards, Jaime will give a short demo. So if you're interested in seeing that, then you can stick around. And I, oh, I think our fourth panelist just jumped in. Great. So for the listeners, if you have any questions or comments, um, you can use the uh, questions box uh, on the, the right-hand side in, the, in that little panel. Um, we'll take your questions uh, at the end um, or sometimes as we go. I guess it just depends on the question. And so let's uh, introduce the four free experts uh, that are currently here. We have uh, Anna Richards and uh, Anna Sofia Correa, Lana Rafkoskaya. And uh, we may have uh, Mark Campbell on as well. I'll give you a moment to introduce yourselves. Um, yeah. Hi, I'm Anna Richards. Uh, I work at VitAccess as a localization project manager. And we predominantly work on real world evidence studies with a focus on rare diseases. I've previously worked at uh, CROs as a project manager as well. And I predominantly work in the localization sector. Over to Anna Sophia. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I'm a freelance uh, translator. I work uh, with uh, medical and pharmaceutical texts uh, from English into Portuguese. I have worked uh, for the past 10 years as an in-house translator and freelance translator as, as well. Uh, I specialize in clinical trial documentation and subject-facing materials, namely clinical outcomes assessments. I also work a lot with patient advocacy and health literacy organizations. Cool. And to Lana. Uh, my name is Lana Rajkovskaya, and um, I have over 25 years of professional experience in the translations industry. Um, both, um, quite interestingly, on both sides, both translation and management side of things. And I've uh, been working with clinical trials and pharmaceutical translations over the last 20 years. Uh, my experience includes working um, as a translator, interpreter in the medical and healthcare setting, also working um, in-house in production on a senior level, as well as uh, training quality assurance staff, creating quality control procedures, uh, grading translations, um, also teaching languages, uh, project management training, uh, designing workshops and translation technology vendor management, localization, and creating groceries uh, for machine translation software, which was actually quite a while ago. 
Um, I also served as a, men uh, a mentor on the board of directors of the New York Shippewa Translators for many years. And uh, my education and training is in translation and interpreting linguistics, localization, and uh, writing from various institutions, um, including in Institute of Foreign Languages in St. Petersburg, Russia, St. Petersburg State University, New York University, and a somewhat Princeton University. Thank you for having me. Awesome. So there's no shortage of expertise on the panel today. Hi, Robert. Just fine. Ah, hello. hello. Is this, uh, oh, that's, is this Mark, the Mark Campbell? It is indeed. I'm not on video cam because I'm having some internet issues, but hopefully you can hear me okay. Yes, you can be the ghost in the panel. Wonderful. You can imagine what I look like. Okay, so thank you so much for having me on your panel. So my name is Mark Campbell. I'm an executive vice president at a company called the MD Group. And the MD Group provides um, a number of patient-centered services from home, uh, from nurse, patient screening to home, home home nurse visits, as well as transportation and reimbursement issues. I've been in the industry 21 years. Um, prior to the role within the MD group, I headed up global delivery for the accelerated enrollment division of PPD. So I think and prior to that, I um, was in the Synexis clinical research business. So spent a lot of my time in the last eight years with sites and patients. Um, in, in global trials, both in terms of recruiting patients as well as treating them on study. Um, prior to that, I had roles in small CROs, Johnson & Johnson and Amgen. So got a, quite a varied background and I'm looking forward to the discussion today. All right. Awesome. So let's get started then. Um, so Mark, actually, the first question that I have on here is specifically for, for you um, and everyone else that, that wants to jump in, but I my understanding is that you have a background that's a little more on the, the clinical trial side of the localization clinical trial side. So maybe you could just briefly describe what a typical workflow for operating a global clinical trial looks like, just in terms of, you know, successfully executing a global clinical trial. <laughs> Fantastic. So I think, you know, one of the greatest things is that you know, when you set out your trial strategy, what you need to have in mind is how you're going to localize it. So both the economic and um, health infrastructure of the countries that you're operating in, their treatment and medication practices. So, you know, certainly from the outset, you know, you're, you're going out there to understand where the prevalence is in the disease and search for those sites um, which have access to the patients or you're know, looking to bring in other expertise to, to find and, and place patients onto the study. So that would be you know, the first starting point is, is what, where's the prevalence and where will you find the patient? At which point you can start moving on to understanding the logistics of um, patient access, treating regimens, um, in order to access patients who are either drug naive or, or not naive. So there's a lot of patient population that you need to bring into consideration. So from a, from a resourcing perspective, it's understanding how you run global strategy, which is often done from central organizations, and how you then communicate that down to on-the-ground groups who are then tasked with localizing the strategy. 
I mean, there's a lot of translators on the phone who are far better placed than I am on talking to that localization. But you know, if you're patient recruitment or you know, informed consent, understanding what the ethic requirements are, and then translating central documentation and patient-facing and site-facing material in a meaningful way. And of course, localization and translation are two different things. So when you design global studies and global campaigns to recruit and, and treat patients, how you then translate that into meaningful text in the local languages is very key. So you know that's you know there's so much you can talk about there, Robert. But I think initially what it is is setting out your strategy, is understanding where you, where your patients and your sites are, and then having a much deeper element in how do you get the global strategy down into local and national and and quite specific countries, depending on their health and regulatory and ethics settings. And that's when your local teams and your local resourcing becomes essential, as well as your market access and market knowledge. Cool. So um, one more overview question before we go deeper. And I think this one is for, for everybody. But uh, so who are all of the typical stakeholders from the, uh, you know, from the local area all the way to the top? Like who are the, the main stakeholders um, in a global clinical trial, including localization? I'm a patient guy, right, from my background. So I would say your number one stakeholder in all research is your patients. So you've got to understand the backgrounds of the patients that you're wanting to bring in and also understand the kind of regulatory, as you mentioned, the, and the local ethics. So different countries have different perspectives on trials. So if you're looking to run a trial in Germany and you need Take x-rays or do anything where there's a radiological element to it, you have to understand that the timelines are much more exponential. From a patient perspective, you've got to understand, as I mentioned, you know, what, what, what are the barriers to them in their local country mm. to participating in a study? So is it, do they have a belief system around whether clinical trials are good or bad? Do they have knowledge about research as an option to them? Do they have transportation? Are there social, economic, um, or healthcare constraints to in the background? So you need to, at a local level, in you know, and assessing, you've got to engage with your local regulatories, your local ethics, your mm -hmm. patient advocacies, and really have a strong understanding of the market that you're going into. And of course, and I would always say this, you should always do research in a country in which is going to benefit from the drug when it actually comes out, not just where the patients are. So I think, of course, sponsors are, you know, local sponsors are a key key asset. Um, and your, your, your prescribers and your investigators, you know, the people, the doctors, the nurses, and the coordinators who are going to be key to executing the protocol, but you need to engage them to make sure that the study design is fitting for, for that patient population. So a lot to consider. Okay, I think that was a pretty good overview. And then, uh, all right, so let's jump in then to localization. Um, so where, where does localization in clinical trials, um, global, clinical, global clinical trials um, fit in with all of this? 
Um, and uh, what, what does the process look like for localizing global clinical trials and uh, maintaining linguistic validation? What does that look like? I think that localization starts from the very beginning of the clinical trial, because the, one of the first things that ha have to be translated, for example, is the study title. To, and then the, the main research team has to, build, has to work with the linguists to work to build glossaries and uh, um, translation repositories uh, to ensure consistency. For example, I, we all, I think, have had projects where the study title is either wrong or um, not exactly as it should be. And the, for example, uh, the study title has to be translated since the very beginning. And so that's what I'm saying, that it should start from the very beginning, the, the, the involvement between the, the several stakeholders and the linguists has to take place from the, the very beginning of the trial. Yeah, just to jump in, sorry, I'm just saying that yeah. uh, one of the main things that we run is translatability assessments across mm -hmm. the content to see how translatable it can be as well, just to see sometimes there are elements which they can't be translated, they need a full cultural adaptation. Um, and this is really key as well at the beginning, as Anna-Sophia was saying, it's just to get it at the very, very start of a study so that it will then flow perfectly through to all the other variants in the, in the different countries. But without these assessments, it can lead to quite a lot of difficulty in, in localising in two different countries. The same document will not serve the will serve different target audiences. For example, it's it may seem the the same document that will be used with investigators and clinicians and with patients, but it both require a completely different set of terminology and text structure. Um, so if I may jump jump in also here, um, there's a lot that we um, you know people don't see behind the scenes of what happens in terms of. Uh, project management of um, projects like this. So we, we said correctly that yes, it starts with analysis and assessments on the uh, project management side of things. Um, and without that, it would be hard to move forward. So here is a stage where we also write up instructions for all, um, the entire production team that is involved here, including translators, editors, proofreaders and such. And uh, glossarization um, is, is one of the most important components here as well. So working um, together with all the parties to get the glossaries, the glossaries together and get them approved uh, by the end client is also uh, quite important at this stage. I think that's a fantastic point. And in order for global strategy to execute, it's got to also be a, a bottom-up and not just a top-down strategy. And if I just pick out, uh, an area that I understand well, which is patient-facing advertisement and um, education material, is that with, with the best will in the world, you can create a global strategy, but the imaging that you use, and as Anna and Lana, a number of panelists have already pointed out, what may sound like a very good English strap line and quite a catchy term or quite a meaningful term doesn't resonate in local markets. Um, everything from imagery to the backdrops and then that localization. So it has to be built in the time frame of your overall time frames to get that grassroots uh, reflection 
both from patients, from the market, and from your translators. And certainly within the MD group, that's when we work through our own translations, that's a key area that we're looking to understand is, does this resonate at grassroots? When it goes through ethics, is this going to make sense? Because you know, time, time to deliver patients and finish trials is the most expensive part of research. And what you don't want is a false gun going off at the start with an ethic rejection um, because patient facing or site facing or or any of your material isn't resonating locally. So I think the panelists have made um, already made those key those points quite clear. I agree. It's interesting you mentioned marketing uh, materials because I, I think that you know in the in the broader translation industry, when people think about life sciences, they think about linguistic validation and like back translation and all of this sort of unique workflow stuff. But I think Slater published recently, I think it was Slater uh, published that I think it was 30% of the translations in life sciences are linguistic validation um, yes, and then the rest are not. Yeah, I was just confirming that it was in, uh, a report issued by Slater, yes. Does that ring true? Like, uh, d does it seem to be like a like an 80-20 or a 30-70 split between like workflows that require back translation and then uh, other types of translations that don't? Yes, definitely. I think that uh, uh, from my experience, linguistic validation uh, is the vast majority of linguistic uh, validation projects involve back translation. And, but you see that the medical devices or, or RC, um, um, patient leaflets, don't re, uh, uh, companies don't use back translation for those. And medical devices, mm -hmm. instructions don't. But in, in terms of linguistic validation, mostly in clinical trials and uh, mainly in uh, clinical outcome assessments, uh, yes, uh, backward translators, translation and the full process of linguistic validation is the most, and yes, uh, the vast majority uses that process. Yeah, sometimes it's actually imposed by the instrument developer. So if it's a patient reported outcome, the developer themselves will state exactly what methodology should be followed. And it can go a lot further than back translation. It will sometimes involve cognitive debriefing, which is actually mm -hmm. testing the translation with native speakers, um, sometimes of a specific condition that the, the patient reported outcome relates to, which really takes us to another level of testing content to see if it is understandable and completely accepted by a certain um, language speaker of the native speakers and in that especially as well in that treatment area i know i think that's that's a fantastic point and if we kind of go back to what's a, what the principles of research is we're here to collect data which is ultimately going to be decided on whether the drug is passed or not whether the drug is um, effective and safe so you see that a lot with these instruments now where either you can only purchase validated translated versions or very strict on the two points you state which is imperative to maintaining the scientific and statistical relevance of the data you capture so i think that's a really good point um, and then we also see um, a lot of times that uh, um, that translation is imperative and um, oftentimes it's the regulatory requirement that we see for uh, for certain workflow that includes 
but translation, linguistic um, validation sometimes more complex workflows to forward translations and uh, reconciliation and back translation as well. Sometimes it also involves um, actual um, conference calls amongst um, all parties involved, including the linguists, discussing what issues the client may have with particular translations, and those are uh, being being addressed. Uh, during the course, sometimes it's the fastest uh, way to resolve those uh, kind of a work around what sometimes is a back and forth you know, correspondence to avoid that. Uh, so we see various um, approaches, but usually, yes, it's not a, uh, a very simple workflow, but um, rather, you know, several steps that are involved in the process. Cool. So maybe we can delve a little bit more deeply into cognitive debriefing. Um, since uh, I, I think we're all familiar with some some of the standard uh, back translation procedures, but uh, so when did cognitive debriefing become uh, a part of the industry, and um, what are the challenges of cognitive debriefing? Um, it has been around for quite a while, but it was only 2005 that the ISPOR guidelines were officially published. And then they talk about the principles of good practice for translation and cultural adaptation on PROs, the patient reported outcomes. Um, they set out the 10, 10 step methodology, like the kind of five star guide really of, of what you should be doing mm-hmm. for these um, PRO measures. And cognitive debriefing is done after back translation review analysis is complete. Um, and this is the, the part where it can be tested on maybe a group of five participants, I would say more than patients because it could be with healthy respondents or it could be with people with the condition that the PRO is covering. And the interviewer will ask them questions in, as in things like, could you rephrase this question? Could you choo- uh, rephrase this response option? So the participants themselves can then rephrase it and give a real insight into what they're understanding. And it's at these key moments that um, when it comes back to us um, and we analyze it, I'm, I'm one of the analyzers of these um, from reports, um, we can start to identify where the issues are, where there's, new, there's usually quite nuanced misunderstandings, but still nuance isn't good enough. It needs to be exact because these are giving us data that we need to pull and it could be coming in from multiple countries and we just don't want to risk that being incorrect in any way. Um, and as we're analysing them, we can see where there are issues. Um, I can even say now, I've got a few examples in mind um, that Mark brought up, even like cultural um, issues. Like um, I've worked on a on a questionnaire that was quite personal. There's really personal questions in there. Um, and we found in some countries that they're just willing to even answer the questions. Um, so the, in these cases, we have to go back to the instrument developer and talk it through and see how these can be rephrased in another way. Because um, we kind of, we're sort of, we're trying to see now, or we're starting to see now, um, more instrument developers taking on translatability assessments and seeing where the issues are going to arise or could potentially arise before they start translating them into different languages um, for large-scale studies. So yeah, that's just one of the examples. I mean, um, cognitive debriefing, for me personally, I think it's one of the, the best ways because you you meet with patients who have these conditions um, and you get real patient centricity in the study. You've you've got their opinions, you've got their understanding and you've fully localized to their 
culture. I don't know if anyone else has anything more to say on it. I could talk a while about cognitive debriefing. <laughs> one, one difficulty for in cognitive debriefing, for example, is with rare diseases, uh, because if you're talking about uh, multiple sclerosis or obesity, uh, there are very big population of patients, a large population of patients. But for example, if you're trying to validate a questionnaire intended for someone with a, a rare disease, it will be extremely difficult to, to find even five patients to, so we can test the questionnaire. So that's when a... a that is a, a challenge. Yes, that's a challenge. Yeah, yes. yeah as well as that, it's um, also a challenge to get the, a spread of like the right demographics. So you would yes. want to go between um, age 18 up to age 100 um, and get a fair amount of people for different groups um so a good amount is, is usually five five participants and then range them across um different ages genders occupations yeah. um, and and have a really good mix so i find i found in um like previous puros they've gone out for a group of 10 that's usually worked quite well um but again if you're working with rare diseases it's really going to yes it's usually a mix of maybe half with the condition and half healthy uh, yeah, and it's another struggle if you work with PROs for children, um, yes. because there's a lot more guidelines mm. uh, because you're working with under 18, um, and that can vary from country to country. So that's more of uh, legal regulatory conditions as well. But in general, there's um, quite a lot of um, legal involvement in any of these type of interviews because you do need to get consent. So, does anyone want to add anything on cognitive debriefing, or because I, I find that fascinating? But uh, yeah. Well, so cognitive debriefing is kind of at the end of the process, right? It's towards towards the end. And uh, we mentioned that uh, that it's good to get localization involved earlier in a, in a project uh, than later, right? So like what, I, I guess my question is like, what is the trend uh, or where's the trend going in terms of when does localization get involved? And, and like, is it always now that, that you're getting involved early? Or are there still cases uh, when when there are problems that are created by not getting involved early? Um, so wh where are we at with that right now? It depends on who you're asking. So I now I'm more involved with real world evidence studies rather than clinical trials. Yeah. Um, and so there I have a lot more input as well in, in terms of localization because we have a lot of more visibility across all the elements of so for example in our real world evidence studies they're contained within an app or a, so a device so it could be um, a tablet or a smartphone for example and localization is involved in every aspect from um, demanding ethics submission uh, um, submitting for ethics for each country um, to the marketing strategies for patient recruitment um, for having contact with the patient advocacy groups for um, information on localizing correctly for a certain country as well um, so for that one it's very from the get-go even from meeting patients having patient workshops it's just from the start and um, we'll be involved in the protocol development as well yeah i was to pick up on the protocol development but i think you know, certainly that's the key area what we're seeing in the industry is a move away from what i was called like child raising techniques as a parent when you've not had a child before where you just solve problems in a linear fashion, right? 
to actually reverse engineering a protocol. So we're looking at now, you know, how do we keep patients on trial? How do we keep patients compliant to the protocol requirements? How do we get patients on the clinical trial? So how do we design a trial that's going to find and retain and maintain compliance on a study? And then we say, well, where is the population in the, in, that we are looking for and its prevalence and its cultural backgrounds? And then how does that make a difference or economic or social and backgrounds with pediatric or, you know, or adult? Are we targeting parents? Are we targeting adults to participate in the trial? So really, I think the, the industry is making or has made great steps to reverse engineer the process of looking at the outcome they're trying to produce, and then at the outset of designing their, their not just the protocol, right, but also the drug. So if a drug, you need five horse pill-sized tablets five times a day, you know, they're looking at, you know, how does that even come into effect? So to be patient-centered, you've got to be curing the illnesses and, and disease and unmet needs that make the difference and designing trials, which then produce the outcomes that we're looking for, which is good, reliable data. So I think there's been a, a no, the word patient centricity, I think has been flown around a lot. It's grown over the last four or five years, a bit like the word strategy, where people sometimes lose to understand the meaning of it. But I think that drive to be patient centered and with the 21st Century Cures Act coming in where we're looking at the voice of the patient throughout drug development, is driving protocol writers, scientific teams, um, drug developers to really think about right from the get-go, as, as Anna has pointed out, how are we going to take this thing that we want to produce and make it work in a local area? And I think both, whether you're looking at home-administered products whether you're looking at clinic visits or virtual trials, all of this now is coming in to the effect of, of planning a trial. Whereas before, I would say that recent protocols were designed in very small niche scientific teams, and then we would solve the problems in a linear fashion. So I really think the industry's shifted in, in a good way quite rapidly. And frankly, you know, COVID-19 is almost accelerating that need to think up front about how we how we deal with the unexpected in trials in a localized way. So I, I think you know to Anna's point, there's been great, there's been really good movement in that area to be more foresight than retrospect fit. I think that from my perspective, in the, for example, in translation of the clinical trial documentation, for example, the translator is no longer just the, the one who takes the English text and, and translates it into the target language. Uh, we act more and we are seen more uh, as a consultant because if we get a text and we say, this doesn't work in our target population, and we are often um, asked to advise advise on that. And that's, I think it's a positive shift that is happening. We're no longer the, the last, last point in the, in the localization and the, the documentation process, but we are active, active participants in the, in the text elaboration. 
I agree with Anna Sophia. I think we uh, see a lot more collaboration between various parties and commissions as well during the translation uh, process. Um, I also want to say that we uh, notice a shift um, towards uh, using mobile technologies um, in clinical trials, like with patient diaries and uh, various questionnaires that are now being filled out you know, online on mobile devices. So that's uh, definitely uh, has been a new component over the last uh, several years that we've been working with. Yeah, it's. I mean, this, the stakes uh, for for these clinical trials are so high, right? Like, uh, and not not just because of life sciences, but the average clinical trial lasts like thirteen years, I think, or something like this, or or they can last uh, over a decade, right? So I, I guess it's important uh, to get it right. So we we have a little bit more time here, and uh, and you know. Um, Mark, you, you dropped uh, in the COVID-19 reference there, and we should probably um, discuss COVID-19 and how that's uh, impacting the, uh, the localization industry, because I'm sure that, uh, that it's changing things for, for, for everyone. Um, so uh, yeah, where, where's a good place to start with that? How, how is the pandemic affecting um, clinical trials and the localization of clinical trials right now? Perhaps I could open up with the how it's affecting the trials and, and leave um, the other panelists to hit the, the localization. So I think number one, which is probably the saddest thing that we're seeing, is we're seeing either wide, widespread cancellation or patient recruitment being put on hold. Obviously, we're dealing with a number of patient populations that are vulnerable, underlying disease areas, immune um, suppressed or immune compromised. So I think the first thing that we've seen is a, a real wind down in patients' enrollment, either, either delays in startup or cancellation of certain studies, particularly in areas where we're a respiratory area where obviously it can have a significant impact on the, um, on the data and, and the outcomes. But it's also driving a huge amount of innovation, such as how do you take the drug? And this is the area which the MD group works in is how can we now take the research into the patient's home in a protective way? How do we get research site nurse materials IMP back and forth between uh, the patient and the site during a, a national and, and a really global lockdown? So I think both trial patient logistics, access and continuity of studies, um, com protocol compliance has been greatly impacted by this. Um, and we've seen the FDA and the MHRA have been fantastic, really, in issuing emergency guidelines on how to deal with it. But in tow, it's, it's now generating a lot of documentation, such as how do you convert a visit from the clinic now into the home, has a huge impact on your documentation. It then, that then is going to be need to be localized. Um, and the education of patients from walking into a clinic to being dealt with at home or doing self-sampling and shipment. It's been a huge shift um, to a decentralized inpatient home or virtual model. So whilst it's driven some positivities, I think, around innovation, it's had a, a really bad impact on the onward development of much-needed um, drugs for met needs. Yeah, just to, just to add to that, because... Um... 
I've moved from working in clinical trials to real-world evidence studies, which are, they are similar to clinical trials, but there's no um, intervention in terms of we wouldn't be giving drugs to patients. So that, that's a major difference between them. Um, but it also means that the actual studies can still go ahead because all of ours are on personal devices. So, for example, participants can just do it, fill in the questionnaires from the comfort of their sofa and let us know how their treatment is going on. But then for them, getting access to the treatment has changed. So we will start seeing a change in respect to that as well, because it's going to be affecting everyone trying to have access to your pharmacy or your pharmacy being open or having the drugs on hand because of logistics and supply. There is undoubtedly a knock-on effect. Um, I think in terms of for localization, I think like Lana and, and Anna probably agree that a lot of us work from home anyway. Uh, we're all quite, usually freelancers will tend to um, be based from home. So there's not been a massive change in terms of the linguist lifestyle, I would say. That it would just be on an individual basis and obviously we'll start seeing effects when um, more people fall ill. And then that will be more of a noticeable difference. We're um, definitely seeing an alley and also, um, you know, projects starting coming in um, some very slowly with clinical trials, but... You know, hospitals definitely what I see on my end now with uh, certain precautions being translated as well as patients coming in and being um, discharged. So um, that's what we see coming in now and um, in the states here in our area. Yes, the, the, from my experience, I see that uh, projects are, companies are slowing, slowly getting back to business now that a uh, a few weeks have passed and the countries are face, uh, facing the, the pandemic progressively. But the, the workflow has become uh, more, uh, has slowed down uh, significantly uh, because just like Mark was saying, uh, companies are focusing right now in COVID. And uh, I'm afraid that everything else is has been put on hold, let us say that way. And it will... For, for example, the MDR directive was postponed, the, which was to be become enforced in May, for example, was po postponed to 2021. Everything else uh, was postponed due to the pandemic. And I, I'm afraid that it will impact somehow the, the industry, industry, the pharmaceutical and the medical and the, the research, mainly the, the research activities. I think this will lead to a big push, though, on more digital um, solutions. Yes, yes, we see digital, digital health and digital and health apps, and even we've seen, but we were already seeing a, a bit of that with uh, the transition to electronic formats from prose, right, and the uh, patient diaries. And yes, it will become even more significant now. So, which. Um... So, so the, the industry is responding to the situation with the, with all these innovations, right? Which of these innovations or, or which, which innovations do you think are going to stick? So when, when this SARS-2 coronavirus thing is uh, all over with, hopefully someday soon, and, uh, and life sort of starts crawling back into normal, um, which innovations are going to, to last? 
um, permanently or, or, or change the, the, the shape of, of some of these activities? Yeah, definitely. I think the distance patient, patient management and everything that it relates to the patient communication, patient uh, visits, patient. I think the innovation regarding clinical trial, not directly related to COVID, but yes, I think it, what will stick is the the ability to monitor patients uh, at a distance. Yes, with, um, I don't think it particularly is an innovation. Uh, we do interviews that we've been seeing in this field, especially have been taking place over a long period of time, but now I think it will only be uh, the new one. I think we see more of an increase in telemedicine and again, digital health study apps um, to complement the clinical trials that are already going on um, and also to, to kind of fill the gaps of the data that we're missing out on from not allowing patients to visit the sites. No, I was just uh, mentioning that I don't know uh, what Anna exper Anna's experience is, but for example, even, and we talked about cognitive debriefing, in the past one of the requirements, uh, for me at least, is that uh, cognitive debriefing should be performed in person, meaning in, with in-person interviews. And right now I'm doing cognitive debriefing through uh, FaceTime and WhatsApp and online uh, apps. So it will help a lot our process of cognitive debriefing because we don't have to be in presence uh, uh, of each other to, to test a questionnaire, for example. True. They say that a lot of communication is in our gestures and our movements. So you, you lose a lot of that if you're not face-to-face -face or you're just doing it over the phone. Yes, I, yes, but I understand. But we are all here watching us, each other, True. right? So. True. And I, I, I agree with everything so far. And I, I suffice to say that I don't think it's about which innovations will stick. I think my, what I've observed is a very a number of key innovations, home visit, telemedicine, remote monitoring. You know, these are not new things. I think what this pandemic will do will building will make our future trials more robust to deal with a repeat scenario. And by that I mean is that you know, if you do not need to bring a patient into a site, how do you do it at home? And I think we'll, what it will actually do is accelerate the adoption of the existing innovation. Um, I think we will see more safeguarding built into the study designs with fallback positions because what we're hearing, and there's so much unknown now, if we have a repeat or similar flare, we need to be able to continue drug development for unmet needs, and we can't be putting studies on hold for six months out of 12. I'm not suggesting that's what we're facing. No one truly knows at this stage, but I think it's certainly going to drive the adoption rate of these innovations. I think if you're working in the virtual trials, home care or transportation, um, part of the research is a great of opportunity for you to push your innovation and, and it stick. Um, and you've seen, and we all know how conservative our industry is to the adoption of technology and innovation is. We've seen a wholesale move within the MD group of a huge surge in home care 
a shoe, a shoe surgeon, telemedicine, reviewing medical medical records remotely or centrally. Um, and I think what we need to do is work on that and make it more wholesale because the reason why these innovations were there in the first place was to remove barriers for patients to participate in trials, to make trials more accessible to a broader population and to ensure that the burden on patients who, as much as you give them full informed consent and background, it's not until they're on the trial with EPRO and diaries and medications they understand the full burden. If you can then remove trips, remove visits that aren't needed, and really focus on the data that you truly need to collect in the most efficient manner, we're only going, this outcome could be that we actually start truly designing patient-centered studies more wholesale. So you know, I'm quite optimistic that what will come out of this is a huge benefit longer term for patients. Definitely agree there. It's actually something that we kind of look into as well is just even the burden of going to sites for some patients. It's really difficult. Depending on their conditions, it's actually quite hard to participate in a clinical trial, but a lot of them really, really want to be part of it. They want to um, enhance the treatments. They want to help in any way. Um, but if you're trying to get someone who's maybe handicapped to get physically to a site, it's it's really hard. Um, so again, there's, there's, only these... that, there's only two sides to that coin is that the years that I spent traveling around sites and talking to patients, what I always used to kind of fill my heart with these elderly patients who loved coming to the clinic because it might be their once or twice opportunity to get picked up in a nice car, driven, talk to other people, speak to the nurse. And I've seen trials where patients have been on for many years, to your point, Robert, like 15 years, 12 years. In, in, in There was a particular study I worked on in osteoporosis. And I was once in the clinic and I was chatting to the lady and I asked her why she was in the clinic. And she goes, well, I'm only here for tea because I've been coming here for 15 years, but the study's finished. And as a company, they continue to bring the patients in. So there's a flip side to human interaction, which is, you know, we want to get a balance, which is why I like the concept of hybrid hybrid trials um, and elective site visits versus um, like mandatory site visits. Make it elective because if you want to be patient-centered, right, you give the choice to the patient. You don't tell the patient that, you know, to be patient-centered, you've got to stay at home. You've got to do it on advice. But I, I certainly think you know, this adoption of the technology is a wonderful thing to see in wholesale. Um, I hope we don't swing too far to the wrong side, but actually build it in as an option and make these things truly available to our patients going forward. And that brings me to the next question about certain um, uh, age group for, uh, for those studies, right? Like we mentioned elderly people in terms of uh, training them on the use of technology. Um, if they have to use it um, in, in this scenario. So how do you um, how do you deal with that? And I know now and we've seen you know training videos. I don't know how effectively this works for a certain age group or not. That is definitely a challenge. Um, in general, like the best way is with patient workshops. Um, but again, things like instructional videos, having uh, maybe their caregiver to if they have a caregiver, of course, um, to 
follow the instructions and, and demonstrate for them. Um, again, in, the, in this time of COVID, it's less likely to be holding patient workshops and things. So I suppose we'll have to be a bit more innovative and come up with some more solutions to make it as accessible as possible to any age group. Wow. Does anyone want to chime in? So um, maybe maybe we should just drop in a mention here. So Anna Sophia, you're involved with the open source uh, COVID medical supplies yeah. uh, group on Facebook, right? Um, yes. Maybe we should, uh, you know, just drop a reference to that for everybody. Um, explain what it is and uh, how they can get involved. Okay. Um, so OSMS is a. It was born of the initiative in the United States to to create medical solutions facing the the pandemic, and now it's uh, turning into a global effort uh, with. 20 languages uh, involved, trying, and we are trying to localize and translate the, the guide and the website and all the guidelines to to create uh, medical equipment uh, to several several countries. And it's a voluntary effort. I'm the team leader along with another colleague of the Portuguese team, but there are man, many, many teams involved there. Um, many countries involved and so we are now seeking for translators and also uh, expert reviewers to who will review our the the translated texts and validate them in the in their own country um, so we can put the the documents and our guidelines uh, in the hands of those who can actually use them and create the, the equipment so we have a Facebook group. Uh, you can search it as OSMS, and we all we also have. Um, I can drop it in the the chat if you want the the link. And we also have the the localization and translation group dedicated to OSMS. And then once you are boarded in the the group, you're divided into the, your corresponding language where you all find everything you need to know. So everyone is welcome to, to join us, join us in our uh, effort to, to translate and localize the, the documents. I'll just go get the, the link and I can put it in the, in the chat. Cool. Yeah, I think that initiative is so cool. It's nice to see that, that people are like, okay, we, let's just see what we can do, you know? Okay, and then we do have an audience question here. Um, to see fast, uh, how important is translation in making or breaking the FDA approval? So, like for just specifically for the FDA, I guess. I don't. I, I don't know the answer to that question myself. So, <laughs> yeah, there's no official guidelines on it, but there are. As long as it has followed the ISPO guidelines, especially if it's for a patient-reported measure, um, and it is completed its final report as well, um, it's usually a good step towards FDA. But I mean, there's other factors. It's not um, the only factor. I think um, Mark will probably be a better place to... I think everything probably has to be perfect, right? Like everything meaning the whole thing. <laughs> yeah. But there's a, there's a lot of, um, in terms of localization, there's a lot of targets that must be hit. And things like ISO 17100 accreditation should be there for each linguist who's taking part in the linguistic validation steps. It should meet the requirements of that standard. Um, 
as well as performing the steps as well. Yeah, I think you're ultimately under inspection. What, what any agency or regulator is looking for is that the re results that you produce are reliable and repeatable. And therefore, if you do translations need validation in certain steps, because what the FDA is often looking at is, is data. And as they go through their inspection, they're looking to understand what are the business processes, the competency of the people, and the systemic systems that surround those business processes are in, that are in place for the outcome, the data they're getting, they can sit there and trust, which is why they have a vigorous inspection schedule on, on new drug submissions. I think that's where the, the general principle to take away is um, you've got to be able to prove and you feel that your work that you do and it's translations that you can repeat that same business process um, and produce the same outcome and you do that using adequately qualified and trained individuals and within the translation and linguistic market that requires us to produce certificates to forward and back there's obviously different mechanisms that are in place but that's also what the FGA is looking for in, in all walks of their, of their approval. Like a comprehensive sort of uh, audit trail as well of, of everything that's happened in the translation steps. So I think, uh, yeah, just as, as Mark was saying, have a full overview of what has happened um, mm. from the start to the finish and the competences of each person who's involved in that. Yeah, we actually just released uh, the full audit trail part of WordMe. Uh, I think it was already a couple of months ago. Um, so we're also pretty, pretty much acquainted, pretty well acquainted with the, being able to produce audit trails. All right. Well, that was super interesting. And, uh, you know, it's like, it's a, it's a bummer that we have uh, this situation in the world right now, but at the same time, it's nice to see that we're, we're innovating new things and, uh, trying to, uh, work our way through it. So, uh, kudos for, for doing that. And, uh, okay. So that wraps up the panel, I think. And now we're just going to like transfer on into um, this uh, this demo about WordBee. Uh, so any attendees who want to stick around, um, Jaime is going to show, I think, how, how back translation works in WordBee. Probably mention audit trails, actually. And uh, But thank you so much for, for coming on uh, as panelists. It, it was a very interesting panel, at least, at least for me. I thought it was great. And uh, yeah, so thanks for coming on. And you, you can stick around, too. So I don't know if, if any of you would like to watch. Yeah, watch. Unfortunately, I need to drop, but it's been a pleasure to see you all. And you yes. too, Mark. Bye, Mark. Thank you, Mark. Thank you. All right. This was another episode of the International Bus Podcast. If you would like to see the demonstration of WordBeast Life Sciences features within our translation management system in Catsool, then feel free to go to our YouTube channel at youtube.com forward slash WordBee to watch the video recording of this discussion, including the product demo. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.